Welcome to The Answer Key, learning and leadership in the K-12 world. Let's say you have a newly minted degree with state certification, or you're a career switcher that passed all required exams to teach in a public school. Better yet, you're a classroom veteran assigned to a new school, grade level, or specialty. And still, you have questions like these. I'd like to ask a master teacher, how should I, as a first-year teacher, balance the new teaching techniques that are emerging and kind of the tried-and-true teaching techniques that have been already going on? I would love to have a conversation about how they incorporate differentiation in the classroom, how they meet the needs of different learners um, coming from different places. I want to know how to incorporate digital learning for students who don't have internet at home. The question would be how they maintain an exciting and creative curriculum every day. I think right now there are so many questions I don't even know what I don't know. You're listening to The Answer Key, learning and leadership in the K-12 world. Hello, my name is Sandra Brennan. More than likely, school has started. Classroom routines are in place, learning is ongoing, and new friendships are on the rise. What you may not realize is that before the first bell ever rang, many new teachers, not necessarily new to teaching, but new to a school, were preparing for the coming school year by participating in professional development seminars. Much of the PD, shorthand for professional development, will continue throughout the school year. The podcast team posed a simple question to new teachers at these PD sessions. What would you ask a master teacher? To help answer some of the many questions received, educators Natasha Saunders and Elizabeth Dean came by, ready to respond. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Okay. Excited to be here. Well, it is a pleasure that you've come. So this is slightly off topic, but still relates to the start of school. What is a first day of school like for a teacher? Natasha, would, would you go first? Sure. Um, I think the first day of school has to be the scariest, but it's probably scarier the night before because you can't turn your teacher brain off in order to get rest. So you come that first day and you're tired but jazzed about meeting the new kids. And because it's your first day, you, you know that things are going to happen, but you're just not sure how it's all going to play out because you've made this awesome plan in your head and you're just kind of hoping that it all goes goes well. But you know that the most important thing is that you are there for the kids and to meet all those great kids that are walking in your room each day. I think that's probably what that first day is like. Elizabeth, did you get butterflies? Of course, of course. I think the first day of school for teachers is much like the first day of school for kids. It's hard to sleep the night before. You wonder who's gonna, who your teacher's gonna be. When you're the teacher, you wonder who are all these students I'm about to meet? Will they like me, right? The kids also wanna know, oh, will my teacher like me? What's the first day of class gonna be like? There's a lot of pressure uh, and I think teachers spend a lot of time planning that first day lesson plan. I know I did. I would perseverate over that first day. It's so important and uh, every year, regardless, it happens. Um, and I'm always so relieved when those, those first 
the first days are over. <laughs> so what happens in those first days? I mean, are you you are introducing yourselves? Uh, the students are getting to know each other. The teachers are getting to know each other. How long does it really take to establish routines and get that sort of classroom management in place, whatever that may mean initially? I think the whole first month of school is really, you know, everyone's figuring out who each other, the role that they play in the classroom and um, how it's going to really feel to be a learner in, in this class. And that's what the kids really want to know, which is why I think you know, teachers teachers know that intuitively. You know those first few weeks are so important, and so that's why it's so much pressure in the planning. Um, and also it's just new because you don't know your students. And we all know each, you know, whether you're teaching elementary school or middle school or high school, each class is different, and the dynamic between the students can really change change your plans. So you could put a lot of time into planning something and then meet the kids and realize something else might work better. Um, but you don't know that until you know it, until it happens. So on that note, let's roll in the first question. And my question to master teachers would be, how do you collaborate with your colleagues so well for so many years and get fresh ideas? I think the most important thing to remember is that um, even the quote-unquote master teacher has never arrived. There is no I've arrived situation when it comes to teaching. And the more you teach, the more you realize that you what you don't know. And um, I think that experience really opens your eyes and humbles you to realize that you need to collaborate. You cannot meet the needs of every student on your own and the brains in your building, on your hall, um, those professional friends and critical friends that you will meet are there to support you and to help you become the best for the group of students that you have. Um, I think it's just a, a mindset of growth and understanding that you can grow and you kind of have the moral obligation to do so for your students. Elizabeth, what does collaboration look like at your school? Collaboration is really the key to teaching and learning at my school. Uh, without collaboration, I would have never survived as a first-year teacher or as a 10th-year teacher. And uh, I tended to lean on my colleagues, uh, my curriculum team, really heavy, uh, always. So it, that didn't really change. Uh, I definitely leaned on them, obviously, my first few years teaching, but I continued to do so um, as the years went on. And that's really what um, one of my favorite parts of this job is the ability to, to collaborate with other really thoughtful, talented, curious educators. And I think that once you find those people that you can go to, they may not be on your curriculum team. They may just teach across the hall. They may teach another subject. But you'll find those people that you can really have those great conversations with um, whether it's at school, um, whether it's at your home, wherever it is, um, I know some people find those those educators, you know, on Twitter. But wherever you can find your your group, those people that you can collaborate with and um, really talk through ideas, it can make all all of the difference. Here's a question from Jonathan. How 
should I, as a first-year teacher, balance the new teaching techniques that are emerging and kind of the tried-and-true teaching techniques that have been already going on? Natasha, I'm going to go back to you. Is everything old bad? Is everything old good? How, how, do you, how does a teacher balance the tricks of the trade? I think part of that balance is, like you said, everything old is not bad. Everything old is not good. Everything new is not bad and everything new is not good. You have to figure out, and that's kind of the beauty of this art that we call teaching, is that um, you have to figure out what works for your students. And you may find that this thing that a teacher did 20 years ago works well for your kids. And you may find that something that was just, I'm going to use the word discovered, but just you know thought about um, two days ago works well for your kids. You just have to be open to um, figuring it out and understanding that you're, you're that's your job is just to kind of figure it out. And you have some awesome people in your building that can help you with that. You're listening to The Answer Key, learning and leadership in the K-12 world. We'll be right back with more questions, more answers. So Natasha, there are a lot of questions about engagement. How do you keep kids engaged? So what does engagement mean for a student? What does engagement mean for a teacher? I think engagement means for a student that they are thinking critically, that they're collaborating, that they're reading, they're discussing, um, writing, doing all of the things that they need to do in order to own the material. And I think it's different than just learn it. Like they are owning it and they're assuming and creating meaning for themselves. Uh, For teachers, I think engagement is more than just the activities, the busyness of the work. It's the quality and the rigor of the work. And not meaning that it's hard. It means that it challenges kids and helps them grow. So a lot of times, um, I remember when I first started teaching and sometimes even later, I would create these awesome activities thinking that it would engage my students. And then afterward, I realized that it did not meet what it was that I was actually trying to get across. And so I would have the kids reflect and they would tell me it was about robots and that had nothing to do with what we were doing that day. But it was a fun activity and so they were engaged in having fun, but it wasn't meeting the need of the learning that was supposed to take place that day. So I think engagement is this balancing act of, yes, the kids should have things to do, but those things that they are doing advance the work of the learning in the classroom. So let's go to this question from Lisa. What energizes you to keep going? So Elizabeth, would you uh, respond, what energizes you to keep going? The kids. It's all about the kids. Um, Just building those relationships and learning about each of my students and really discovering what, you know, what they're curious about. That's what keeps me going. Um, But also, I really... Uh, have found that when I feel like I'm stuck or in a rut or need some inspiration, there's something about um, getting out of your your school or even just out of the four walls of your classroom that can be really inspiring. Anything to add to that? It just made me think about teachers oftentimes are afraid to leave their students. And 
you can't let that fear of what the kids may do while you're not there <laughs> keep you from growing because you, they're going to be who they are <laughs> when you're there and when you're not there but they're going to get so much more from you when you've had the opportunity to see and do something different so I, I'm totally with Elizabeth on that. So just to be a uh, devil's advocate or just to share that I don't know, how does it work? I know that just 15 minutes, that's a start. And then maybe if there's, a, if there's an instructional strategy or there's something that you're interested in trying, um, ask who is doing it well. Principals, um, team leaders, department chairs, assistant principals, they'll, they'll know. I think it's time to call a friend. The podcast team received so many questions, we reached out to other school professionals. Let's take a listen to the questions and the answers. Hi, yes, my name's Claudia, and um, I'm an ESL teacher, and I would love to have support ideas and work on creating curriculum for brand new newcomers who speak, who have very little or no English, but still incorporate critical thinking skills and then make it accessible for them. Claudia, that's a great question. My name is Angela Rabet. I'm here from the Office of ESOL Services with my colleague. Erica Meadows, also from the Office of ESOL Services. In your building, you may have, if you're at a middle or high school level, there are your ESOL chairs to support you. At the elementary level, there are ESOL lead teachers. You can also re reach out to us in the Office of ESOL Services. There are resources on Blackboard, on the Google site. There are resources in eCart for you to use. You may also have a mentor in your building. Um, we have resources to help you build the capacity of your classroom teachers so you can work collaboratively to make sure that you are scaffolding and supporting those recently arrived ELLs. And we also offer professional learning opportunities in addition to great beginnings that you're participating in now. We're just really excited for you. You're gonna have a great year. I'm gonna be at Sandberg Middle School teaching seventh grade math. And I wanna know how to incorporate digital learning for students who don't have internet at home. Hi, my name is Megan Tracy and I'm an IT learning specialist in Fairfax County Public Schools. This is such an important topic and I'm glad you brought it up. Many times teachers feel that students aren't gonna have access at home to work on their digital textbooks or digital resources but Fairfax County does a great job in providing access for all. Most schools have computer checkouts where they can check the computer and a Wi-Fi to bring home for certain assignments. We have discounted internet through Cox and Comcast for students that may need it. Students also have access to um, digital resources on their mobile devices, which is often helpful if they don't have a computer at home but have a phone or an iPad or something like that. My advice would be to communicate with the support at your school. All schools have a school-based technology specialist that would be a great resource for you to tap into for questions like this. Also, remember structuring your class so the digital resources can be used in class instead of at home is another great idea. I'm a first-year teacher in sixth grade at Clearview Elementary, setting up my first classroom library, and I'm wondering whether I should level my classroom library. Hi Louise, my name is Suzanne Whaley, I'm the Elementary Language Arts Coordinator, and this is a really interesting question that you bring up. There's been a lot of buzz in the literacy community about leveling classroom libraries and the role of leveling texts for students. And if you notice in the new Language Arts Planning and Pacing Guide, a lot of the work that we are trying to emphasize is 
authentic reading and writing practices. And so we envision a classroom li library much like you would see a bookstore where they're sorted by genre, by interest, and levels are really not very much highlighted. One of the things that I think teachers are intending to do by leveling their libraries is to support their students in choosing books that are just right. But by the time you have kids in sixth grade, really what we can do is we can teach them how to choose just right books without a level. I think the intention is that we're supporting students, but we're really taking choice away from them and it becomes more of an inhibitor. So the level is really a tool for a teacher and a starting point, but it really shouldn't be restrictive for students. Another great resource for you and for all language arts teachers is if you look at the ISD Language Arts YouTube channel through your Fairfax County Google Apps, you can find a video called Classroom Libraries and it's a great five minute video where two teachers are interviewed about the decisions they make for the classroom libraries that they set up. So I hope you have a great school year and that the kids have a great year of reading and talking about texts with you. This is The Answer Key, learning and leadership in the K-12 world. Welcome back, my name is Sandra Brennan and with me in the studio is Natasha Saunders, a specialist for middle and high school language arts instruction, and Elizabeth Dean, who is in her 10th year as an educator, currently serving as an instructional coach. Elizabeth, what is an instructional coach? An instructional coach is someone in your school who um, can help you uh, in your classroom, and also help you on your curriculum team. Um, my job in my school is really to support uh, individual teachers and curriculum teams um, in best practices and in instruction. Um, and the great part about the role of an instructional coach is that it's not evaluative and it's confidential. So let's go to a couple questions. And my question for the master teacher is, how do you engage all students at the same time in an activity? And my question is, um, what is the best way to engage parents positively to start off with? Engagement is such a is such a big topic and it's so important for both students, teachers, and parents. I think one of the best strategies for engagement in a classroom is to first get to know your students. I think a really uh, an important way for, for a teacher to make sure that they're engaging all their students is to plan for um, presenting the same information or the same opportunities maybe in different ways. So having different opportunities to engage with the material, the content, or the skill, but um, maybe in a, in a couple of different ways. And I think part of what uh, intimidates teachers about differentiation is they think that it has to happen maybe all at the same time. And that's, it doesn't necessarily have to all happen at the same time. It might, um, once the year's going and you know, you know your kids really well and the kids know you, but at the beginning of the year you can be um, slow and intentional about it. So one day you can you know, do a writing activity and, with the kids and then the next day 
engage with the same material but do more of an experiential activity. Kids might engage with the material differently um, as the year goes on, so you want to give them opportunities to, to try new things. And uh, Natasha, so there was a question about engaging parents. <clears throat> I think, and as a parent, I have an elementary school student and a high school student, and I think the one thing that all parents want is to know that you are caring and they can come to you when they have problems and that line of communication is open. And the best way to do that is in that first two weeks of school, intentionally reaching out beyond just the syllabus. And um, maybe it's phone calls, maybe it's emails, maybe you have a Twitter feed and you wanna make sure that all of your parents follow you on Twitter. Um, maybe you have, you have a remind set up so that you can intentionally reach out to parents to send, remind, send reminders. Whatever mode or method that you choose, uh, you're doing it with the thought of, I want my parents to know the experiences that their children are having in my classroom, and I want parents to know that their opinions and values are welcome. Um, someone once told me that when parents send their kids to school, they don't send the bad ones and leave the good ones at home. They send you the best that they have. And I think knowing that, you want to cherish those children in your room because they are someone's special gift to you for that period of time. Um, and I also think it's important to reach out before there are problems. That is probably like the biggest piece of advice I can give, not to wait until something that is very small becomes very large. If you reach out soon, you can get to know the parents and get to know the kid's story. There could be, or the guardian, or even know if there's a parent or guardian available. But if you close your door and keep that communication off, you can't engage parents. But there's a sense of bravery involved here because Absolutely. you are putting yourself out there beyond the school hours and you are removing a sense of, you know, your personal time. How, how does that work? I mean, I, you, you are a very dedicated professional, but at some point, don't you have to say, I, you need to talk to my principal or Absolutely. I can't respond anymore. Absolutely. I think every parent is different. You'll have some families that require a little bit more than others. You'll have some families that you probably won't hear from all year long. Um, I think the most important thing to remember is that it's not necessarily the number of touches, it's the quality of them. So, for, for example, um, one of the things that I used to do is that I would choose a couple of students a week and I would just send an email to their parents during my planning period. It didn't take me long just to say, hey, John is doing a fantastic job or hey, just to remind you that there's a project coming up, especially if it's a kid that you know could use a little bit more encouragement. Um, I, I, I don't think that this idea of communication needs to overtake your life. As a matter of fact, I would say that you do need to keep your personal life separate and you need to keep it sacred um, because your family is the most important thing. I think what I am saying is that um, it's just really important for families to know that if they send an email on Monday, there's a strong possibility they'll get a response within 24 to 48 hours. Um, and if it's something that you don't feel comfortable with or something that you don't know how to respond to, 
send it to your AP, talk to your department chair, talk to that person that you trust in your building that can give you good quality advice so that you can um, put your best foot and face forward when it comes to um, communicating with families. So let's go to another question. This is um, has to do with curriculum. Uh, my question would be how they maintain an exciting and creative uh, curriculum every day. The best advice for uh, keeping curriculum exciting or keeping kids engaged is really about authenticity. Making your class meaningful to the kids' lives. So it shouldn't be separate. It shouldn't be a separate thing that only happens in your classroom. It should, there should be ways that your curriculum can connect to the kids' lives outside of school. And if once they see why this matters to them, I think it's really hard for them to, to not stay engaged. So finding that sweet spot of you know, authentic curiosity where they really do, you can see the light bulb go on um, and the, the glimmer of curiosity in their eyes, like, oh wait, this actually does apply to me. Finding ways to c connect your curriculum to the real world in authentic ways is the key. And I think um, experienced teachers in the school or teachers that have worked in your school community for a long time can also be helpful in finding those connections. Natasha, you do a lot of training uh, for middle and high school teachers on the value of getting kids to read, write, think, and discuss across content areas. How can your work support new teachers, this whole idea of disciplinary literacy? I think when we talked about engagement and we talked about um, differentiation, the work of literacy meets those needs. Uh, having students own the work and really get to delve deeply into the content areas using those four different modes that you had just mentioned is good for all teachers regardless of um, experience level and because the county now is in their third year with um, with this work I think we have developed this huge resource of ideas and um, assessments that teachers can use that are all um, categorized by content area within the secondary literacy framework that can really support their work, especially when they're looking for ideas of how do I do this? How do I get this done? Um, people have done some of that heavy thinking for them already. You know, Elizabeth, you mentioned that you are working on your PhD, which is no easy endeavor. Uh, congratulations on that journey. So you mentioned that you're working on the role of student voice. Yeah. What does that mean for the layperson? What, what, is, what does it mean to include the student voice in a classroom setting? Aren't there enough voices already? <laughs> uh, yes, but I would argue that the student's voice is the most important. Uh, and it's often the one that we forget. So student voice is... Uh, defined as um, opportunities for students and teachers um, or young people and adults to collaborate with one another to make school a better place or to improve the teaching and learning happening in classrooms. 
so often um, we forget that the students are um, are there and willing to take on leadership roles within the classroom or within the school and uh, they're they're not only are they ready and willing but they they can they're capable and they want to um, so my focus on student voice is really just about um, about you know examining what it means for teachers to collaborate with students in a way that is uh, beyond that goes beyond just asking the kids their opinion on a survey um, or you know asking them maybe what book they want to read this one or that one but really including them in the design of the learning that's happening in the classroom or including them in the 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 rule making or the decision making process in the whole school so if you had a crystal ball what does and students have more voice, and they, students are encouraged to think, read, write, discuss more and more, how does that change the look of the classroom? You know, it, it's not going to be your classroom in the future. It's, it's a difference. Do you think that, and what might it look like? I think um, it will uh, look beautiful, and it does in places and in classrooms that you know, honor and value student voice. Um, it's a beautiful thing to witness. Uh, the classroom really is not our classroom as teachers. It's, it belongs to the students. The school, you know, belongs to the students too. That's what we're all in this profession for is um, to help students and to be there for them and to show them that they have the power to make a difference in this world. And uh, a classroom that's honors and values student voice is really a place um, where students are feel empowered and it's a place where the teacher really is the facilitator of learning um, and that the the kids they they see the relevance of what they're learning they see that if they um, that they have they can they see that they have the opportunity to voice their opinion and that it will be heard so many times kids have the opportunity to voice their opinion, but um, we're, we're not the best listeners. Elizabeth is really a, an expert in this area. Um, having read her work and listened to her uh, really research what this means and make meaning for herself, and then I listen to how she envision, envisions it, not just like in the future, This magical time but right now like these things can happen now there's there's little instances of it in so many places but scaling it is going to be something I'm really looking forward to watching Elizabeth do with your help <laughs> Tasha tell us a little bit about your research what are you working on so my research is around how um, black girls experience the return from school after suspension and so it's really looking at what is that schools and teachers do in order to support students returning from suspension. So instead of um, we just want to eliminate the number of suspensions kids have, there are these systems and mechanisms that there are some schools that have set up, such as res um, responsive instruction, that really get to the heart of how do we support kids so they don't get suspended again? How do we create a classroom culture where we do honor their voices? and um, we honor their experiences so that 
we can create the best environment for students and that we are not judging students based upon their behavior because the behavior speaks. All behavior tells us something about a student. So it really gives us an opportunity to look at what is it that we're doing to support students who have had some misbehavior and we want to help them move forward. Is that why your outreach is so important? So that when you responded about uh, parent engagement, you were thinking about the work you're doing for your PhD? Absolutely. And it starts early, it starts often? Early and often. Um, it's, and, I, and I think when I say often, I, I, I literally don't mean every day. I, I mean what is often enough for this particular student in, this particular, in their particular circumstances. So, for example, I, I've had a student before where her mother and I would call each other because that is what that student needed for support. I didn't need that for every kid, but she was really bright, but she made some really bad choices. And so we were working together in order to keep her in the building and not write referrals and not get suspended for things that were just small behavior things, but someone else could see it as, a, as disrespectful. So we were working together in order to support her. And that's the kind of work that I'm very passionate about, about keeping kids in the building. We don't need to exclude them. We don't need to send them home. What we need to do is to find a way to reach all kids, um, regardless of, of what their challenge can be. We're almost out of time, but we're going to take one last question. It's from a new teacher. She wears two hats, geometry and special education. The question that I would like to ask is, uh, as a first-year special ed teacher, what are some easy tips that you can give um, to manage your caseloads, how to effectively organize your folders and uh, track the students' progress and also take care of yourself at the same time to not overwork because I tend to do that and I know the, the workload will be overwhelming. So I would like to hear, yeah, what are the easy tips that you can give to a first-year teacher to manage the students and also take care of themselves at the same time? <laughs> Thank you. So there's a lot in that question. Yeah. Where to start? The best advice, especially for a geometry teacher, so I'm assuming here the kids are older in geometry. That's middle or high school. A lot of the work I think that we as teachers do, especially in middle and high school, are things our students can do. And it's hard for us because we're really organized, passionate, professional educators to give up some of that work. Uh, it might take some more planning on your part to give over some of that responsibility to students, but anything that you can, um, any way that you can involve kids in some of that organizational, uh, all of those organizational responsibilities that you have is great um, for engagement, for giving the kids a sense of purpose and a sense of ownership over the learning that takes place in your class. Natasha, any bits about that family work? balance, uh, self-care? I think if there was something that I would say is that find a time that, again, is sacred that you do not use for work. Um, and find something that you enjoy doing. 
it could be a guilty pleasure. Maybe you just really need to keep up with the Kardashians and that is important to you. Don't let it go because those are the things that keep you connected to who you really are. Yes, you are a teacher and yes, this work is is so all consuming, but before you became a teacher, you were a different person and don't forget that. Don't forget the fact that there are people in your house that also need you. Um, if you have a pet, don't let that go. Don't assume that because it's my first year teaching, I can't take care of the things that matter to me because those are the things that also make you a great teacher. You want to be able to have things to share with your students when they come back from the weekends, not just, well, I spent my weekend grading papers. Boundaries. I mm -hmm. think that's what Natasha is saying, and mm -hmm. that's so important. So what is the advice you wish you had received when you started out? There's so much. Um, I think, if anything, the piece of advice I wish I would have received was to be gentle with myself, to know that it's okay that I don't know what I don't know. It's okay that I mess up some days. And um, just to be gentle and allow myself to learn the job. This job is enormous. and. Um, sometimes I tend to be, I expect more of myself than what is reasonable, reasonable. And so I think that that is the one thing that I wish someone would have told me from the beginning is just, just be gentle with myself and give myself an opportunity to learn. I wish I had known how to be comfortable with the feeling of imperfection. It's nothing is ever good enough. Nothing ever works exactly how you think it's going to work. Um, and I think it took me a long time to get used to the feeling of, well, that didn't go as great as I, as I thought it would. Or, you know, the feeling of just, um, it's, it's like kind of disappointing or disillusioned. Like you had these great, enormous plans for this beautiful lesson or this experience for your students and it just didn't happen that way. And, uh, you know, a wise, a wise man once told me that uh, the best teachers are those who are constantly looking for ways to reimagine their classrooms and getting used to that feeling of constantly being thinking about how to reimagine your classroom is hard, um, especially in, I think, in life, usually, you know, you plan for something, it happens, and then it's, then you move on. Um, but in teaching, you always have that, that second chance um, and just getting used to that feeling of never really being finished, never really being able to close the door on something. Um, that was hard for me to get used to. Um, and, and I think it still is. But that's also one of the most amazing things about the job. So on the uh, idea of self-care and maybe watching the Kardashians, if you have to keep up, <laughs> Natasha, what are you reading or what are you watching just for fun or maybe even for work? So right now I'm reading Culturally Relevant Teaching and the Brain. Our county is doing a big push on cultural proficiency and cultural relevant um, pedagogy. And I found this book by Zaretta Hammond and immediately fell in love with the idea of what culturally relevant teaching does and that combination of culturally relevant teaching and neuroscience like really started helping me geek out a little bit and I really enjoyed that. Um, for fun, I am finally reading the book that 
everyone has already read, and that's The Hate You Give. Mm -hmm. Everyone keeps telling me that that's a good book. I started reading it last night, and I purposefully had to just put it down to go to bed. It is truly that good of a read. Um, I am watching Midsummer Murders on this. <laughs> <laughs> this on <laughs> God, I mean, oh my gosh, <laughs> this on Weta, um, the public television. Because I don't know, it's one of those things you can watch and not have to think about. So I just started reading Little Fires Everywhere, uh, another book I think everyone else has read except for me. Um, so. Uh, that's exciting. Um, and for work, um, I'm rereading um, Cultures of Thinking by Ron Richart, um, a book that I could read a thousand times. Um, but it's a great, a great read, especially at the beginning of the school year. Good reminders um, for how to intentionally create the culture of thinking and learning um, for for both kids and for adults. And um, my kids and I have been watching a lot of uh, Sesame Street um, and uh, Fancy Nancy. You know, it's uh, our time is uh, coming to an end. Some of us have a class to teach, projects to complete, places to go. It's a wrap. Natasha and Elizabeth, have a great school year. This podcast ends with the voices of new teachers, their hopes and dreams. Thanks for listening. I'm looking forward to reaching every child and, uh, you know, making a community with the children and the parents and just for every child to improve and succeed. I am looking forward to a new setting and to working with the kids. It's um, going to be new for me because it's my first year working with sixth grade. I normally work with little kids, so I'm very excited to work with older kids. I think my challenges will be fitting everything in and making sure I'm meeting with each of the teachers and meeting the needs of the students as well as the teachers and being able to build good trusting relationships. This program is a production of the Department of Information Technology, Fairfax County Public Schools.